Welcome friends to Infertility and Me podcast, a safe space created with the silent sufferer in mind. I Am Podcast is dedicated to infertility advocacy and sharing diverse stories to help you feel validated, seen, and heard. I am your host, Monique Farouk, and I am one in eight two. Healing is best when done together. Hey friend, could you please do me the honor of leaving a five-star rating and review in Apple iTunes? This will increase our show's ranking and reach more friends who may be silently suffering with infertility too. We're stronger together, staying connected, getting plugged in. Thank you, friends, for tuning in to Infertility and Me podcast, a podcast for you, for me, for all of us in the one in eight family. You guys, I just can't even believe it is February, the second week, well, second Tuesday of February already, you guys, one whole year of being in the midst of this freak show shit show that is COVID-19 with now the mutations of COVID spreading rapidly I hope that you are staying safe I hope that you are well that you are staying sane and you are utilizing all of your tools that have been afforded to you through your own research and or through the help of your mental health therapist oh you guys you guys you guys I just hope that things get better. And although things won't be normal in the sense of what we're used to, I just hope that it gets better. And I hope that you are feeling okay. And I hope that you aren't going too crazy. And I pray peace, strength, love, and well-being in your household as well as healing emotionally, mentally, physically and spiritually from your root chakra on up to your crown chakra from your head down to your toes I speak peace into your body and healing into your household and if you haven't friend follow the podcast on Instagram at infertility and me podcast If you'd like to ever be a public guest on the podcast, you can visit the website, which is linked in today's show notes at infertilityandmepodcast.com and then the section or the tab, get in touch. And if you'd ever like to be a part of the anonymous infertility warrior series to share your story, whether you're male, female, LGBTQ+, doesn't matter your race, religion, or creed, you can submit on the website as well at infertility and me podcast and just scroll down and fill out the form and i would love to have you for both public and or anonymous infertility warrior series our guest today is cassandra conley and she is a single 
woman but in relationship who is divorced who was diagnosed during her first marriage that she had fibroids and so today's episode is dealing with fibroids and how that affects her or has affected her life and trying to conceive and then we'll also get her thoughts on egg freezing and also what the future looks like for her and if she still even wants children at this point find cassandra on instagram and facebook and i will have her links linked in the show details as well so that you may connect with her further and i thank you guys for being here on the infertility and me podcast and we'll be back in just a moment with our girl cassandra if this is your first time listening friend I am a work from home mama and so you may hear my son Omar in the background from time to time and or any of his toys for that matter. We got Cassandra on the line y'all and I told you that this episode is going to be centered around fibroid, um, her fibroid experience and but first Cassandra we got some we got some tea for you because Cassandra because you had your diagnosis with the fibroids when you were um, with your ex-husband correct? I did. Yeah, that's the tea, y'all. Yeah, she got she got diagnosed with her uh with with her first husband. So walk 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 me through how that was. Like, were you trying to conceive at the time when you got diagnosed with him? When you guys were still together? No. So it's a um interesting story. We were uh, we were engaged at the time, and I had some spotting, and so I went to the doctor because that was not normal for me, and that was when I first found out that I had fibroids. I was 28 years old and like I said, engaged. And so I came home and I told my fiance at the time, um, hey, this is what's happening. I don't know if I can have kids. So if you don't want to get married, I understand. Now I, you know, went from day of finding out that I had fibroids to all of a sudden, I don't know if I can have kids. And now I sit mm-hmm. and was like, you went like 10 leaps ahead. (laughs) (laughs) But at the time, you know, those were the things that were going through my mind. And of course, I really wouldn't have been okay. But it was me trying to be strong and I guess subconsciously prepare myself for whatever this would look like. Um, So it wasn't until, um, let me clarify this, we never got to the point of trying to have kids. Gotcha. Okay. Um, As things progressed, my fibroids got worse and it impacted my cycle severely to where the first two days of my cycle, I could not get out of bed. Mm -hmm. I, in the middle of all of this, we had gotten married and everything, and I had a bilateral pulmonary embolism. And for those that don't know what that means is at the age of 30, I found out that I had blood clots in both of my lungs. And when I was taken into the hospital, the first thing the doctor said was, you cannot under any circumstances get pregnant. If you do, the chances um, of your child surviving or being severely retarded are great. Um, so at that point I had been taking birth control pills to try to manage my cycle. Well, that went out the window and through my, uh, treatment for the, uh, 
bilateral pulmonary embolism, my gynecologist and my hematologist both were like, so yeah, there's nothing we can do to help you. There's nothing we can do to help you with the pain of your cycle because of the fibroids or the bleeding, because any medicine that we give you that would help substantially will counter the medicine you're taking for your blood clots. So to hear two doctors tell you there's nothing they can do for you is kind of devastating. And so I was pretty much um, left to deal with an obscene amount of pain um, for at least nine months to a year. Um, so when my mom came to help take care of me when I um, was in the hospital, and she saw the results of my cycle off birth control, she was like, this is not human. I have no idea how you have managed the willpower to sustain yourself through this pain all this time. And what she told me was, I would have told the doctor to do whatever they had to do to make it stop. For me, that wasn't an option because that would have meant I would have lost my chance to be a mommy without ever having the chance to try. And I wasn't willing to do that. So for me, I was willing to withstand this pain, this um, taking of a life, so to speak, because I had no life for those two days. I couldn't get out to bed, mm -hmm. um, you know, for that duration of time for the chance to become a mom. And after I finally got past treatment for the embolism, we started doing different tests because now it was like, all right, let's treat the fibroids so that we can move closer to getting pregnant. And at that point, um, I had to take a test that was called an HSG test. And basically, they stick iodine in you um, through a tube, if I remember correctly. And the objective of the test is to get the iodine to go into your fallopian tubes to determine if they were open. So the first part of the test, they, you know, shoot the iodine in me and it didn't show up on their monitor, however they're measuring it. So essentially, um, like basically, if you can picture like rolling around on this table, trying to get fluid to go into my tubes, this test is the most painful test I have had in my life. It's horrible. <laughs> and <laughs> all I can remember thinking is, I'm doing this to become a mom. I'm doing this for my babies. Needless to say, the iodine does not go in the tubes. And we find out that my fibroids are blocking the tubes. So how are they blocking the tubes? Are they pressing against and applying pressure or? They were that big. They were that big. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I had to do another test. It was um, some kind of sonogram. Uh, I forgot the name of it. Um, a histosonogram maybe, um, but the amount of effort that my gynecologist had in trying to find even my ovaries because they had been moved so far out of where they were supposed to be. It was a struggle. Mm. Uh, so that's literally the impact that these fibroids were having inside of me. And I had no idea. All I knew was I was in a massive amount of pain um, that your average over-the-counter pain medicine wouldn't help um, to stop it or anything. So I just kind of had to live with it, wheel myself through it. And so what's, what's your, your ex, 
what is his reaction to all of these things happening to you? And are these things happening after you guys got married? Yes. Yeah, so at this point, we were married. Um, we had been married for uh, less than a year. Um, we got married in August. And in July, I was diagnosed with the bilateral pulmonary embolism. And then uh, in, I want to say, the end of the first year, the beginning of the second year is when all these other things were going on. Um, with all the testing and things of the sort. Um, and, you know, he was as, as understanding and sympathetic as a man could be. Um, he knew I was in a lot of pain. Um, when it, it's a funny story how men hide their feelings. So, um, one of the things that I did, uh, I ended up having surgery. I had a myomectomy to shrink the fibroids. And prior to that, I got an injection as a Lupron shot that basically sent me into menopause for several months to shrink the fibroids. When I say menopause is real, it's real. Hot flashes and everything, I had them all. Mm. Um, so the day before I go and have my myomectomy, he completely freaked out and called me when he was leaving work at the train station and said, I think someone stole the car. Like, what do you mean? And I think what happened was he was so anxious and worried and nervous about everything that was going on and what I was about to go through the next day. He completely like freaked out. No one stole mm -hmm. the car. He just mm -hmm. really forgot where he parked. Yeah. 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 And, you know, it's like he, there was nothing he can do to help me other than be there for me. So he was great. You know, uh, he helped. He and my mom helped take care of me while I was recovering. Um, I couldn't do a whole lot for myself um, for several weeks. Um, and, you know, he never made me feel bad or, you know, anything of the sort. It was always like, we'll get through this, you know, Um after the surgery, we met with the gynecologist again to develop a plan um, for getting pregnant. Um, and the plan was basically uh, after my body had enough time to heal, we would start to try. And for we would try for six months. And then if I wasn't pregnant at that point, we would uh, explore other measures. Um, and unfortunately, or fortunately, that's a conversation for another episode or a mm -hmm. different podcast. Um, our marriage never got to that point um, for different reasons outside of the fertility challenges. We ended up getting a divorce um, before we had a chance to try. Gotcha. Wow, girl. Yes. Wow. Oh, and there was one part of the story that I left off that is important that I want to make sure people understand. So um, as a result of having the myomectomy, one of the side effects is that I had to basically become okay with having a C-section. Um, and the reason behind that is basically your uh, womb has been tampered with because of the surgery. And the way that I, it was explained to me was that it was stitched back together like with any surgery. And when you go through the process of laboring, it puts an 
great amount of stress on the inside. Um, and where those stitches were essentially could burst. Um, now, what the doctor at the time told me was that if I went into labor, there was a great chance that I could die. That scared the bejesus out of mm-hmm. my husband and my family to the point that um, it was having conversations around having children, um, even to this today, has been difficult with my family because of that fear. The thing that I want to point out is that's in theory, it's accurate, but it's not as simple as if you were to have one contraction, you're at risk for dying. Um, as I've progressed and, you know, just explored other options at this stage in my life for having children and met with the different doctors, that has been a conversation that's been at the forefront of every doctor visit that I've had. And the way that it's been explained to me was that that's a bit of an exaggeration, that the amount of laboring that I would have to go through to be at risk for a rupture that could put my life in jeopardy is severe. Mm. Now, of course, that doesn't mean if you think you're in labor, sit at home and twiddle your fingers and like blow it off. You know, I have been told, go to the doctor and it's better safe to, it's better to be safe than sorry. Um, But that has given me a lot of comfort. Um, Not quite sure if it's given my mom as much comfort yet, but it's given me a lot more because I was literally terrified that, okay, if I were to go into labor and things not happen quickly, I could die. Um, So I share that as a, um, I wanted to point that out from the standpoint of when you go through all of this, there's a lot of information thrown at you. In a short period of time, and your brain is already doing all sorts of weird things. First, it's the reality of the possibility of something that you may have always thought that you should be able to do your whole life being in jeopardy, and it may not happen the way that you thought it would. And then someone telling you that something's wrong with your body. Um, let me clarify, it's something wrong, but that there are some things that are happening inside of your body from a medical standpoint. So it's just a lot of things, a lot of information, a lot of emotions that are being um, brought to the surface. And so I just really encourage, no matter what type of fertility, even no matter what type of medical thing you're going through, but especially in this space, to ask questions and get as much detail as you possibly can. Because, um, mm-hmm. you know, to hear that if you do this, you could die. I mean, the reality is anyone can die during childbirth. Perfectly healthy, young people have died during childbirth. Um, but just to hear that, you know, there's a certain thing that you now have, if it's not taken care of, could cause that, you know, is a bit scary. And it, you know, for me, that wasn't Mm -hmm. fully the case. And it caused a lot of additional anxiety that wasn't really needed after I got a better understanding for how everything worked. Yeah. And I, you know, sometimes I think surgeons or what, or your specialist that you were seeing at the time tell you those things because I think, well, maybe the motive behind telling you that you shouldn't do, do vaginal birth is because I don't, well, you know what? I can't even say nothing. No, because they, they, they definitely should have been more, I don't know. They just should have gave you more information. Like you just said 
about, um, you know, what could happen moving forward and giving birth and stuff like that, instead of just telling you, look, you can't have vaginal birth. Well, to clarify, every doctor has confirmed that it. I do have to have a C-section, but okay. the difference is that, so the first doctor made it seem like if I were to be at home and go into labor, let's say, for instance, the baby was to come early, that if I was to be at home and start to labor, that that could put me at risk. And what the other doctors have said it's not instant laboring. It's prolonged laboring. Gotcha. So if you, you know how some people can be in labor for 20 hours or something. I can't do that. It, right, right. You know, once you start to think something is going on, then you need to go to the doctor immediately. Um, and if I were to labor for a little bit, that would be fine. But, you know, it's it would be an extreme situation before I got to the point where my life was in jeopardy. Gotcha. Makes, makes sense. Makes sense. Makes sense. Okay. Ooh. So that's a lot, right? That's a lot. That's a lot. So does anybody in your family suffer with fibroids that you know of? I've had like an aunt that's had them. Um, maybe and, and some cousins. But that's really it. Nothing to the degree that I am at least aware of that has had them. Okay. Okay. So here we are. We've had all these surgeries to correct this issue with the fibroids. So how are you feeling physically? What are your, your menses like now that you've done the Lupron? And so how long did you stay on the Lupron to suppress um, uh, forced menopause, I guess? I want to say it was about five or six months, maybe, maybe longer. I remember I was in Chicago Mm -hmm. over Christmas, um, and then I had the surgery in July. Mm -hmm. So I don't know if they stopped me in June or if I took it all the way up to then. So probably about six, maybe seven months even. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. Oh, wow. Okay. So you're off of uh, the Lupron now. You go back, you get checked up again. Yep. I um, am one of those that are on top of my doctor visits. Mm -hmm. So I go to, you know, the gynecologist every um, year, at least to have my well woman exam. Um, Fibroids has come back and I have a polyp. Um, Thankfully, and this is nothing but God, um, my cycle mm-hmm. is, for lack of a better term, normal. I can function. I can work out even on day one. Um, there have been periods where I don't even need to take, you know, Tylenol. Mm. Um, so it's uh, incredible. Compared yes. to before, yeah, Girl. major transformation there. Major yes, transformations. Yes, I mean, I had taken 800 milligrams of ibuprofen, mm-hmm. um, Percocet, uh, you name it, um, and it was nothing was working. And now, um, I can just take Tylenol, um, 
or Aleve or Advil or any of those. Um, and I'm good. So I am incredibly thankful um, that the surgery has helped me. Mm-hmm. One of the things that, you know, the doctor said was that basically I had two years. Um, and so this is another thing about medicine. Mm-hmm. They just like to scare you sometimes, I think. Uh, <laughs> it's all well intended, I'm sure. And erring on the side of caution. Um, but she told me basically, like, you need to get pregnant within two years. This was 2013. It's 2021. I've still yet to get pregnant. Um, I haven't tried. Um, but, you know, I am in a place now that the doctors have not told me that I can't. So we're going to, you know, operate from a place of faith that until God says I can't, I can. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, Now, one thing that I did do was um, in June of last year, I decided to freeze my eggs um, to give me options. So, you know, that way I have, as I physically age, my eggs won't. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. For sure. So tell me about that. What was that decision? Like, first of all, I understand why you made the decision. So for if anybody's listening and they're 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 single um, and they're looking to do options and you may be a little bit on a fence. So walk us through like how you got to the point where you were like, OK, I need to do something because what if I turn 45 and I'm with this by myself or with uh, a great partner and we want to do this thing? So walk me through what your your mental state was like and coming to the decision that you wanted to go through, I'm assuming IVF, um, to have your eggs um, retrieved and everything and put on ice. You know, it was a decision that took place over a period of years. Um, So when I was going through my divorce um, and I ended up moving to another state, I went to, you know, all of my doctors before I left so that I had um, all my checkups needed until I found new doctors where I was moving to. And um, so I switched doctors um, and this one's like, well, you're getting a divorce. You're, I think at this point I was on the, maybe like 32, 33. Um, She said, you should look at freezing your eggs. And so I did just to see, I knew nothing about it. And at that point, um, with the idea of moving cross country, it was not a expense that I was in a position to take on. Um, it was about $20,000. And that just to me was not something I wanted to entertain energy around at that point, as well as incur that expense. But it was something that I had in the back of my mind. I knew a couple of people that had successful births um, with their children through IVF. Um, So I was willing to consider it. Um, I'm one of those people that believes science is still meant to help us. I believe that everything that exists as far as like um, ideas, technologies, et cetera, um, I believe they come from God that he gives those to people for a reason. Now, sometimes people use them in ways that are meant for harm, which is a whole nother thing. So I don't feel that there's anything wrong with using science to help you. It's no different than 
anything else you used medicine for. So that part didn't bother me. Um, it was more of the financial aspect of it. Um, so last year, no, the year before, I think, so 2019, I became aware that my insurance covered a large portion of fertility treatment, 90%. Um, so I was like, oh, all right, well, that's doable. Let's, you know, explore this further. Um, and I did. And I was, you know, I got all the information. One of my friends at the, um, we worked at the same company. She had gone through the process, so she was a wealth of knowledge and information. Um, I went to the same place that she went to. Um, let me go back for a second. Before talking to her, I did explore another place. And that experience, I felt like I was at the slimiest of slime ball used car sales slots. Mm. And I never went back. Wow. Like, e- even in the middle of COVID, not asking, like, hey, are you okay? How's life? It was, so, are you ready to move forward with IVF? not with you you know so I went to my friend's place and the experience was completely different um for anyone that is considering it you know I've only gone so far I've only just frozen the eggs um but it is um it's a process um it, it definitely does something to your emotions. Um, I'm very thankful that my boyfriend was um, supportive and with me through every step of this journey, um, from helping me with the injections, um, because it, it's just for me personally, it was a mental thing. Like you're giving yourself on a daily basis, you know, depending on your individual situation. I think I had at different stages at one point up to three different injections I had to give myself every day. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And you don't know what you're going to get. So you are basically producing um, a large amount of eggs that grow up to a certain size. And then your body has to hold them. And then there's also medicine that prevents you from ovulating. So it's like all these things that are kind of going on in your body. Your body changes and, you know, you're more hormonal and all these other things. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then you're constantly going to the doctor for them to check you um, and to measure your eggs and things like that. But I, to me, it was worth it. You know, it, it gave me what I wanted. Um, so I have four eggs that I was able to freeze, that they retrieved and froze. So I didn't lose any eggs from retrieval to freezing, which is a blessing because from what I understand, you can. At each step of the process, you can lose eggs. Right. Yeah, I've heard the same. Yep. Yeah. So I would have loved to have more than four, but I'm thankful that my body produced four. And so that's what we're going to work with uh, unless I decide to do it again. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. wow. But for me, it was, you know, to have options um, I, because I felt like a lot of this process, I didn't have options. And I kind of got thrust into something that I wasn't, you know, prepared for 
or even thinking about. And people would ask me, so well, what are you going to do? I don't know. You know, I, like I said, as long as God doesn't tell me I can't, you know, I probably will explore getting pregnant the old fashioned way, see what Mm -hmm. happens. And then, you know, if not, I have this or for whatever reason, I may decide, you know, let's go the IVF route. Um, And in reality, when I went through that process, and even until today, that wasn't a decision I was willing to make. I did it to give me options. And that's kind of as far as I've gotten. I got the option to do it either way. Yeah, I like the the connotation behind that and just being comfortable in this position where you are. Um, and as a woman, just trying to figure it all out, you know, yes. and figuring out if you want to be that mom who waits till 45 or something like that, you know, and whatever that looks like for you. I just love the fact that you have given yourself all these options and you haven't placed so much pressure on yourself to make any decisions, like on a timeline basis, you know, Mm -hmm. and did you find that in having those options available to you and having completed it, did it feel like, okay, now I can breathe and I can, I can move forward. Yes. Mm -hmm. Um, Because, you know, a big part of this um, whole process, I went from being married to being single and, you know, dating again. (laughs) Right, exactly. You know, the the thing about, you know, about fertility of any sort, they have a way of making you feel old. And so you go in at 35 Mm -hmm. and they tell you you're Mm -hmm. geriatric and you're like, what? What the hell are you talking about? Right. Isn't that for you know senior citizens? You know nothing mm-hmm. against them. It's just you know that's a, a title that I'm typically used to associating with mm-hmm. people in a latter stage of life than in my 30s. And I'm like, wait, what? Yeah, yeah. I and mean, then, come on now, 40s the new 20. What are they talking about? Okay, exactly, exactly. And so then for me to be told, oh, well, you're high risk because you're. 35 or you know over 35 and then you're high risk because you had the blood clots so um one thing for me is that um because I have had blood clots when I do get pregnant I will have to uh from what I've been told the duration of my pregnancy I will have to uh, give myself an injection in my stomach um to prevent me from uh developing a clot Mm-hmm. So that is another twist to uh, my story of becoming a mommy is that I'll have to give myself injections for uh, the full pregnancy and then a period of time after. Um, and then if I do do IVF, that I'll have to do it before I start the IVF process. Um, so, yeah, it's a, it, 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 it is a lot. Mm-hmm. Um to wrap your arms around and for a while that played a part in decisions that I made when I was dating it was like I felt mm. like I was up against the clock which you know we feel that anyway as women no matter what your situation is um you know we hear that biological clock is ticking after you turn a certain age it just comes on all of a sudden and then when you have these different things that are playing in the background it was ticking even louder 
And so this also is like, okay, now you froze time. No matter how old you are, your eggs will always be 38. Well, I love it because I wish I had it done in, you know what I mean? I wish I had it done in, whether I'll be, whether that means be having a surrogate, you know, or just anything. I wish I had it done. In, and I, I definitely encourage a lot of people who I, that I come across in public or like just meeting people online and stuff. I'm like, girl, look, you're single and all that stuff. And you don't know what's going to happen in the future. At least just get yourself checked, you know, just know your mm-hmm. fertility status, know what's going on with your body. And that's for men, too. And because a lot of men are very shocked about having any sort of fertility issue. And that just is basically just lack of not knowing and lack Mm -hmm. of education, which is partly our fault in the way society presents fertility and it being such an easy battle. I mean, an easy uh, progress or path to parenthood. So, yeah, yeah, I totally agree. I totally agree. So how... Or what would you like someone else to know or to things to consider if they are new to the fertility world and maybe they have a diagnosis like fibroids or endometriosis or something like that that affects the body physically with physical manifestations of pain? What would you like to speak, speak uh, say to them or encourage them to do or some things to think about moving forward? Oh, that is good. The first thing I would say is there is nothing wrong with you um, at all. Like your body is just doing something, whatever that something happens to do. But there is nothing wrong with you. As much as society sometimes tries to pin this on us, your worth and value as a woman is not tied to your fertility journey. Even if you choose to not ever have kids, that's not, you know, your worth does not lie there. Um, Love that. You know, the other thing that I will say is the choice is yours. You know, one of the hardest conversations that I've had to have was with my mom, you know, Mm -hmm. and one of the things she said to me is, I don't want to lose my child to have a grandchild. And that's very real. I can't say I understand because I don't have yeah. a child, clearly. But yeah. that's very real. And that has played a part in my thinking and decisions. You know, is a decision that I'm making possibly going to have repercussions on other people that mm-hmm. I love? Mm-hmm. The flip side of that is if you make a decision solely based on that, you are the only one that will have to live with the fact that you made a choice for your life completely based on other people and what would have made them happy or made them um, feel safe or secure or just kind of protecting their emotions. Um, Because no one can tell you what will happen with anyone's pregnancy. Um, and only you can answer for yourself if you look up at 65 years old and you don't have children, if you will regret that decision or not, and only you will be the one that has to live with that. 
Mm, I love all of that, girl. You dropped a whole lot of gems on the <laughs> on the platform today, girl. Oh, I love it. I love, love all that wisdom you just gave us. So how can we get with you on Instagram or Facebook um, and, and connect with you further? Yes, yes. So I am on Instagram and Facebook. Um, the best way to connect with me is through my podcast page, which is Crowned Opulence Podcast. And that's the name on Instagram and Facebook. Um, you can also email me at Cassandra.a.conley at gmail.com. Um, and just to help you with the spelling, it's C-A-S-S-A-N-D-R-A dot A dot C-O-N-L-E-Y at gmail.com. Thank you, Cassandra Girl, for coming on and giving your wisdom, telling your story authentically and so powerfully with us. I appreciate you so very much, especially with being a brown girl and having the courage to encourage others, no matter their race, creed, or color. So I appreciate you, Mama. Um, and yeah, friends. Thank yeah, you friends. For Thank you me. for tuning in, friends. Thank you for tuning in. Peace and blessings, and stay COVID free, y'all. Yes. <laughs>